How do you know you're up to date? When you follow EMS World, you answer that question with confidence. Because when we say EMS World, we mean the whole world of EMS. The remaining question for you is how will you stay up to date? In print, online, at EMS World Expo, the world's largest EMS dedicated conference, and now in a podcast. Welcome to another episode of EMS World Podcasts. I'm your host, Mike McCabe. Today, we will discuss a progressive approach that One Health System has taken in pushing a comprehensive mobile integrated healthcare program while working within the COVID-19 reality we find ourselves in. With me today from South Shore Health, located on the South Shore of Boston, Massachusetts, is Dr. William Tollefson. Doc, thanks so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Doc, you were a contributor to the featured article entitled Leveraging MIH Against COVID-19 in the January issue of EMS World, which breaks down the successes of your program. As we jump in, I wanted to highlight some of the impressive statistics provided within that article. In seven months, you have conducted 2,200 appointments with patients in the community. The MIH team has tested well over 900 individuals for COVID, including those from home and in skilled nursing facilities. The team has treated over 150 COVID-positive patients with mild or moderate symptoms in their homes. And in doing so, it estimated that 149 COVID admissions were avoided. I would, without question, qualify this as an overwhelming success. Now, with that said, it seems to me that this fell into place really, for lack of a better term, at the right time. Obviously, the program wasn't started with COVID in the picture. So to start, why did South Shore decide to start the MIH program? Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> that's a, a great question. We're, you know, we're a, a regional medical center uh, uh, uniquely positioned in Massachusetts uh, with a hospital-based EMS system. Um, that's pretty rare around here. Uh, multiple municipality-based, uh, private, um, uh, for-profit EMS uh, providers. Um, and there's only about three or four health system-based uh, uh, EMS uh, providers in Massachusetts. But South Shore is one of them. And, and it was really created um, initially, it was kind of the traditional fly car um, ALS unit that would go out and inter intercept with uh, uh, the community BLS services. And, and then um, as more and more of the communities around here grew, um, they switched to an ALS model and South Shore Health um, took the point of medical control and oversight and kind of transitioned to a, a supporting role for those, for those communities. But at the same time, really struggled with flow. As most, most hospitals of this size do, really struggled with uh, length of stay in the emergency department, getting patients up into beds, uh, getting patients out. Um, and uh, the fly car system transitioned to a, um, a hospital-based EMS system that was, that was mainly uh, with the mission of flow. Um, and that uh, kind of solidified EMS at South Shore as, uh, as, as, as here to stay and a, a, a key resource that, quite honestly, is also revenue-generating. Um, fast forward several years, uh, we now do 911 service for our community, uh, Weymouth, which is the city we are in. Um, and then it was only natural looking at the gaps and the disparities in care in our community uh, that EMS and MIH in particular 
could really leverage the clinical acumen and the procedural skill of a paramedic in a non-emergency. Uh, and MIH is pretty pretty new in Massachusetts, uh, um, lagging behind a lot of other states in regulations and licensing, but we were able to um, uh, finally uh, be licensed to provide mobile integrated health in Massachusetts. And we were the first hospital-based system uh, to to get a license. Yeah, and, and I think that you say it's it's new to the state, but I, I would argue that it's it's relatively new nationwide. And I think that, you know, it's a progressive type way of, of looking at the profession and what can be done for patients. And so I say, as you look at this and you take this model, how have the providers accepted or adapted to this new type of role? Well, you know, it's not, uh, it's not for every paramedic. Um, it, it's, a, it's a certain mindset and it's a certain skill set. Um, and our uh, paramedics who uh, applied for this promoted position um, underwent an additional 300 hours of training within within the health system. Wow! Doing actual clinical clerkships side by side, um, our providers here. Um, so it's it, it's it's really the right it's the right person, the right mindset. Um, and again, we're lucky enough to have such a great group of paramedics, there was never, never an issue recruiting anybody for, for this role. Um, and, uh, you know, what started out last March is four, uh, four amazing paramedics. We're now up to 12. Wow. Doug, I'm going to rewind back to that because that, that was, I was going to ask, are there specific requirements or, or of training and an additional 300 hours is significant. That's not, I don't think, um, something that would be considered the norm for everyone partaking in the MIH program. And, and that's impressive. Is that a model that you actually helped create as far as those hours of training? It is. It's actually, it's by design and on purpose because in Massachusetts, there's no, there's no MIH certification. There's no level of that. There's many training programs that will offer MIH courses, but we didn't do any, any of that. This was a clinical clerkship. This was getting our paramedics into the pulmonary clinic, working side by side, our pulmonologists, caring for the patients that they're going to be seeing in the community. Um, and, and it was by, de by design for two reasons. The first one was to really get these paramedics up to speed on the latest uh, and really immerse them in the clinical environment of those clinics. Um, but on the flip side, it was also really important that the cardiologists, the heart failure specialists, the um, the pulmonologists knew who these paramedics were. I mean, I, I know them. I know them all intimately because I'm an emergency physician and I, I work with them very closely. And I'm used to working with a paramedic and I know what they can and cannot do. But the other, the other physicians, this is probably their first time working with a paramedic. So when I have now an MIH paramedic who's in the field, who is assessing or working with a patient who's got um, bad COVID pneumonia or COPD, for example, and having an exacerbation, and they send a, a text message to the pulmonologist or call them, they know exactly who they are. And they also now know what they can do and, and have what they're... So it was, it was, a, it was a, by design to be twofold. And I think that was really part of our success is that as a hospital-based system, uh, these paramedics are immersed within our system um, and caring for our shared patients. 
that's really innovative and certainly goes a long way as to developing a trust between both the physician and the MIH medic. And, you know, I think that in many ways, I would assume that the paramedics look at this as a way to progress the industry, correct? I mean, it's a way of taking a step forward and not just being latent in the regular everyday benign type duty. Absolutely. I think, you know, it is a, a promoted position within our organization. Um, and we're really lucky to have a culture here that recognizes EMS as a practice of medicine. Um, and having a, a paramedic who's an employee of the health system, some who've worked here for 20 years, um, know know the physicians, know the nurses, and it's, it's part of that team that we have to, to care for our patients. No doubt. Doc, what were some of the concerns or obstacles, if any, that the system had about starting this type of service line? Maybe it was about overhead or buy-in or costs or things like that. What were some of the initial concerns? Well, I think, you know, like every MIH program, the concerns are costs. Um, these are, uh, I mean, 300 hours uh, for a paramedic training is, is expensive to even train people. Right. Um, the equipment alone, the licensing in Massachusetts. Um, and so, so it, it, it's a, it is a significant cost. And I can tell you that the, the PNL for year one on us is uh, there is no, there is no P. It's all sure. L. Um, but when you start looking at it from a systems perspective, and you start looking at a health system that has um, gaps in care, issues with with uh, access to care, um, overcrowding in the emergency department with high length of stay, and we're transitioning to uh, from a fee for service model of reimbursement to a value based initiative in care. Um, uh, it made sense to really look at this closely to how we could, from a systems perspective be a loss leader, but also uh, really work on the concept of cost avoidance. It's funny um, because it flows right into the next thought that I was going to put out there. And I think that many would agree that the fee-for-service model is an antiquated source of reimbursement for the EMS industry. But with that said, how challenging is it to change the culture from treating and transporting a patient to a hospital to working aggressively to keep a patient out of the hospital. You know, and I ask that not just from the perspective of the EMS providers, but also from the physicians and the hospitals, especially. It's almost counterintuitive, yet it makes all the sense in the world. It does. And, you know, so there's a couple of thoughts to that. The first thought is the paramedics got it. They knew the goal. They understood. They had additional training with, with these populations and quite honestly, are confident in their clinical skills um, and are confident in their assessment. I mean, listen, these guys know sick, not sick, right? And, and, and so that wasn't as much of a problem, quite honestly, as with some of our um, – we incorporate telehealth into this. Right, of course. So, so we have APCs and uh, other providers uh, who, who are uh, interfacing with these paramedics and they all oh, listen. I, this person has a, has a SAT of eighty four percent, and they have COVID, and they're febrile. And I think I think they need to come back in. Your question is, well, why? What 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 is it that you would do here in the ER that you would do that, that you couldn't do right now? Well, I would I would get some labs, and I would I would give a neb. Okay, well then do that. Draw some labs. Give a neb. 
start some steroids. Okay, do that. They have steroids. We can get a mobile chest X-ray. Um, you know, it's what's what? Right? How are you gonna? How is it gonna change management? And I think that was. And, and again, listen, telehealth was doing actual telehealth on the provider side was new to all of us during COVID. Um, and so uh, that was where the learning curve was. And I think once we, the, our providers who were doing the telehealth, uh, APCs, some physicians got to the, well, actually, there's not a whole lot I would do differently here uh, at the hospital than I could do right now in their home. Sure. Absolutely. And I, I think there's a lot to unpack with that, right? I mean, let's be honest, the, the medics got it right away. And if we're being completely honest, the medics probably got it right away because they do it for all the altruistic reasons, right? They, they're used to working on behalf of the patient, not worrying so much about money, right? And all those other things. Whereas huge hospital health systems, they have to worry about those things. So it doesn't surprise me that the medics got that right away. But bringing the physicians and the admin on board and everything else is is certainly uh, a task, but one that you seem to have overcome through this concept. But conversely, once the providers are on board, I think that there's also a challenge in getting the patients to be on board with this type of platform, right? Because they're used to going to a hospital. Yeah. Well, that's that's where starting our program in March of 2020 was serendipitous. Sure. Exactly. Right. So we. So we had, you know, patients were used to coming to the hospital. And I think we all know in the emergency department that a lot of times patients aren't brought to us. Uh, don't They don't come to us. They're sent to us. Right. Uh, I, called, I called my doctor's office. I'm having, you know, oh, I can't see you today. Go to the ER. Um, they're sent to us from an urgent care if they need something else. And <clears throat> so um, we, A, we know that, but it, it creates this, well, I, every time I, this happens to me, I get a pneumonia and I get admitted for three days and then I go home. Um, and during COVID, it, patients didn't want to come to the hospital. No, they didn't want to come. People were afraid. Um, and it and it wasn't patients, you know, with COVID or COVID-like symptoms. It was it was patients with cellulitis, patients with, you, you know, mild mild COPD exacerbations or other things. So um, that was a that was a turning point because. Not only now did we have the service and the ability to leverage to care for people in the home, we had an entire population of patients who wanted to be home. And quite honestly, no one likes coming to the ER, right? No one likes likes coming to the hospital. Coming to the ER is like going to the DMV, you know? It's just something you have to do sometimes. Um, and the from the patient's perspective through this program, allowing people to stay home and to get the care that they need at home. The, the, it's just mind blown. The, the thank you notes, the way somebody acts uh, on a telehealth visit versus their, maybe the way they're acting in the ED because they're uh, stressed and they're in a hallway or there's, you know, noises and and craziness going on. Um, It was, it was, it was really, uh, the timing was perfect. There's no question. I think that anybody that would actually understand this process would 100% be on board. Listen, if I could stay in my home and be treated the same way that I would be in the hospital and not have to worry about those outside influences or potential infection or things like that, it's a home run. And so once you get the buy-in from all parties, it seems like you're up and running like like you folks are. And, and I think the article explains it really, really well 
as to how you just kind of fell into. And I don't want to say that when I say you fell into, like you say, it was very serendipitous that you this occurred during COVID because that's when the mindset started to change as far as this is concerned. And there's actually an example within the article that talks about a, uh, a post, uh, I believe it was a, a post heart transplant uh, patient that did not want to go back to the hospital routinely. And the, and the MIH crew took care of that individual for 30 plus days. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So she, she actually had a, um, had a cardiac surgery, not a transplant. Okay. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but traditionally those patients would go to a nursing facility, a rehab after, uh, we all knew what was going on in rehabs and nursing facilities during that time. And, uh, quite honestly, she, she, she had no interest and didn't want to go and wasn't going to go. And the, the surgeons and the team were and quite actually, she had her surgery at a different hospital, um, not our hospital, um, but they called us and told us about her and they knew about our program. Uh, and we said, you know what? We can help. We can take care of her. She lived in our, in our area. Um, and, and here, here's the other thing. MIH again, from a systems perspective, doesn't work in a silo. We work together as a system and our system has a phenomenal home care division with just fantastic visiting nurses uh, that can do just a, a ton of stuff. And they're 24 seven and they are on the ball. And why not just team up with them? MIH can do all the, the medical management and then we can use our uh, home care division for all the PT, uh, the, the OT, the VNA. And so for this woman, we set up essentially a SNF or a skilled nursing facility in her home, um, which uh, was our first SNF at home. Um, and to this date, we've now cared for 38 people in that exact same, uh, that exact same capacity. Wow. That's impressive. You're building a model doc that many are going to look at for guidance. And, and as I said, it's impressive. And, and for the listeners, you, you absolutely, if you haven't uh, read it from the January issue, definitely go back either online or through your old magazines, because leveraging MIH against COVID-19 is a fascinating article, which really highlights all of the positives that have occurred through South Shore's uh, efforts. And, and Dr. Tollefson, I really appreciate you coming on with me today uh, and discussing this. And, and certainly I believe that this is the future for EMS and as a comprehensive healthcare system and to get that recognition as providers, not just ambulance drivers, <laughs> allows paramedics to, as you say, progress and, and get that, that bump in not just not just money, uh, but also recognition. So, I uh, I implore you to keep going and and keep uh, doing all the great things you're doing. And thank you again to you and your team for all that you've done through the COVID nineteen time and 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 what you've put together here. It's my pleasure, Mike. Thank you very much. It's been a it's been a wild ride, um, and uh, we're still going. And it's growing and it's great. Keep it going, Doc. And and thanks for listening to another episode of EMS World Podcasts. Don't forget EMS World Expo in person, Atlanta, Georgia, October 4th through the 8th. We will definitely see you down there. And we will see you next time on another episode of EMS World Podcasts. I'm your host, Mike McCabe. Thanks again. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.